Well, given what Matt preached last week of the river of life and the tree of life in the middle of this new creation and of God's redeemed people reigning with Christ forever and ever, well, these verses in 6 and following seem a little anticlimactic. It seems like verse 5 in chapter 22 is a better ending. They're going to reign forever and ever. Or perhaps verse 6 would be a better ending. These words are trustworthy and true, period, full stop. Or perhaps verse 7, I am coming soon. That seems like a good way to end a book. Or perhaps even in verse 8, worship God. But the letter just keeps on going. For those of you who have watched The Lord of the Rings, maybe you haven't read it, but you've watched it, there last movie, there's, well, two sections, The Lord of the Rings or Return of the King, the last movie. It seems like that last movie, Return of the King, boy, it ends, but then it doesn't end. It keeps ending. There's like five endings, and you have the big climactic battle, and then you say goodbye to these people, and you say goodbye to them, and then there's the traveling back home, and it's the movie that never ends, and it's kind of what we see here in Revelation 22. The, just when we think it's over, and just when we think the text is ended, God keeps going. Well, here we have ending after ending after ending because verse 5, he will reign forever and ever, is not the point of the book. It is the visual climax of the book, but it is not the purpose of the book. And that's because the purpose of the book of Revelation is not to tell us how great heaven is, though it is. We've seen that over the last few weeks. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to teach us how we're to live and how we're to think if we're to be in that heaven when it comes. It is written to the church. That's why these verses here are a little anticlimactic. It's a series of reminders and exhortations with one message, that we would be faithful, or more specifically, that we'd be overcomers, that we would be conquerors. We see that phrase last used in the previous chapter, chapter 21, verse 7. You see that there? The one who conquers will have this heritage, this inheritance. What will it be? It'll be the new creation will belong to you. You inherit it in Christ. But what's the condition? It is those who conquer. That word for conquerors, it's the Greek word Nike. The Greek goddess Nike was the goddess of victory. Now, God isn't telling us to just do it, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but he is telling us that we are to overcome. And that is the whole purpose of this book, is to strengthen us for the overcoming that is necessary to follow Jesus in this world. And so we're supposed to see in all throughout Revelation 21... Through Revelation 22.5, this vision of the new Jerusalem and of the new creation, the glorious church redeemed with Christ, we're meant to see in this handful of verses what victory looks like in the future so that we'll be motivated to fight for the victorious Christian life now. The purpose is to induce us to holy obedience so that we will be saved. You say, whoa, wait a minute. How does that work? Well, in the Bible, there are three tenses to our salvation. 
There's a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. In one sense, if you are in Christ, you have been saved. That is your redemption, your justification. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not the works of your it's not because of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, lest any man should boast. We have been saved. But we are also being saved. That's our sanctification. For we are the aroma of Christ, Paul says, the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. But we're not only, we've not only been saved and we're not only being saved in the present, we will be saved. That's why Jesus taught in Matthew 24, the one who endures to the end will be saved. There are three tenses to our salvation and Revelation 22, in fact, the whole book of Revelation exists to induce us to a holy obedience so that we will be saved, so that we'll endure to the end. Well, if you look at the earlier part of the book, there are so many temptations in the book of Revelation. You can look specifically at chapters 2 and 3, and you'll find that the temptations that the churches had there earlier in John's day are the same temptations that we face, just to name a few. We're tempted to compromise. We're tempted to sacrifice our faith or perhaps our priorities, you know, God, family, church, etc., all that. We tend to get those all mixed up. You're tempted to compromise your priorities so that, so that you can build bigger barns. You keep silent when you should speak up, or perhaps you joke with mockers when you should be silent. You're tempted to be lazy, lazy about your walk with God, lazy about holiness, You can let your prayer life slide. You can let gathering regularly with the church slide. You can let vigilance against lust slide. You want want what your flesh wants and not what God wants. You're tempted to not do anything for the gospel that makes you uncomfortable. You don't share your faith. You don't really want to join a small group. You don't take risks for the gospel. You wouldn't certainly go to another country for the sake of the gospel. And you're a little hesitant to send somebody that you really, really love to another country that hates the gospel. You have temptations to hard-heartedness. Perhaps you lack the humility to turn to God in repentance. And and there was a time in your life when you loved Jesus and you knew it and you felt it and you would run to Him in your sin, but now there's just bitterness or perhaps cynicism. And you won't admit wrongdoing even when when everyone else around you sees it. And you're you're happy just kind of saying, well, I'm a sinner in, in broad strokes, but to confess to Jesus and others very specific sins, oh, that means accountability. And it means that you're going to have to change. And some of us don't really want to change. And the cost to our reputation, well, that's just a price too high to pay. Or some of us don't really trust Jesus with our sin. We say, no, I'll come in a couple of weeks when I figured out how to get on top of my sin on my own. So we stay away from Jesus. Oh, that's what the devil loves to tell us, so that we stay distant from Christ. And you know what happens five or or ten years later? Well, listen, you don't even know it, but you're barely a Christian. You don't go to church. You don't really pray anymore. You barely even believe. Listen, this doesn't happen overnight. It starts with little bitty compromises now. 
I've been walking with Jesus for almost 20 years now, and my Facebook feed is filled with friends who are also former Christians. Men and women whose college years were the spiritual good old days, but never got any better. Most of them never set out to outright reject Christianity. They just got busy and they got worldly. They moved to a new town when they took a new job and They didn't really put a whole lot of effort into finding a church. Next thing you know, Sundays got filled up with times at the lake with friends, and days and months and years roll by. They compromise, perhaps, with a a spouse that's a nominal Christian at best, maybe not even a Christian, and here they are years later far from Jesus. It didn't happen overnight. You just look up one day, and following Jesus is something that you used to do back in the good old days. Or perhaps what many of the Christians in John's time were facing. Professing Christians were giving up in the face of suffering because the cost of following Jesus was too high. It means that you don't get into the social circle that you want to be in. That you don't get to make the kind of money that you want to make. That you might be hurt or you might be ridiculed or your kids might be hurt or your kids might be ridiculed. Or there's just the suffering that comes from being in a human, in a cursed world, and you get to a point in your life where you just want to curse God and die, similar to Job's wife, because all you feel is pain. You don't feel God anymore. These are the fights all of us face. These are the temptations. And every morning, we need to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Oh, Lord, today is full of evil. Not just big, obvious evil, but all sorts of little invisible evils that want to subtly veer me off course until I'm shipwrecked. And I'm not as strong to face them as I think I am. Lord, help me. How are you going to overcome? How are you going to conquer so that you victoriously march through the gates of the new Jerusalem? What does it mean for tomorrow morning? What does it mean for the rest of the holiday season? What does it mean when you return to that job that you don't like or that job that you wish you had or perhaps that job you love a little too much? How are you going to become an overcomer? How do we, quote, make our calling and election sure, as Peter writes, 2 Peter 1.10? How do we Nike? How do we overcome? Well, Revelation 22 is going to give us four directives. We're going to see, first of all, in verses 6 through 9, that overcomers obey God's Word. Overcomers obey God's Word. And then we're going to see in verses 10 through 13, overcomers don't play with sin. Overcomers don't play with sin. Third, we see in verses 14 to 17, overcomers come to Jesus. Overcomers come to Jesus. And then finally, in verses 18 to 21, we see that overcomers don't tamper with God's Word. Overcomers don't tamper with God's Word. So we've said four things. Overcomers obey God's Word, they don't play with sin, they come to Jesus, and they don't tamper with God's Word. And all of this is pointing to one big idea in this text, and it's this, that in order to reign with Christ in heaven, 
We must overcome in this life by looking to Him and obeying His Word. In order to reign with Christ in heaven, we must overcome this life by looking to Him and obeying His Word. We look to Him and we obey His Word. Look at the text with me, beginning in verse 6. We're considering this first point, overcomers obey God's Word. And he, that is the angel, said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent an angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard. I saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, oh, don't do that. I'm just a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. This is the sixth of seven benedictions in the book of Revelation. That word benediction just means blessing. Blessed are the ones who keep the words of this book. That idea of keeps, that word, it's a Hebrew idiom that means to hear, to observe, to obey. Jesus used the word uh, used it often. Let those who have ears hear. Not simply to hear, but to obey and respond appropriately. Well, it's the exact same thing that's meant here. He says in verse 6, <clears throat> excuse me, he says that we are to keep the words, or verse 7, who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. He repeats it again in verse 9, who keep the words of this book. If you and I are to be overcomers in this life, we must keep God's word. We have to not only hear it, but we have to observe it and we have to obey it. How does James put it? Don't just be hearers of God's word, but what? Be doers of God's word. And why is that? Well, we're told in verse 6 the reason. It's because these words, he says, are trustworthy and true. You can trust them. And they are true. They in every way correspond to reality as defined by the one who has created all reality, that is God. We see this at the very beginning. Put your finger there in Revelation 21 and go to the first chapter of the book. Just glance at Revelation 1.1. We see the same theme. John is bookending his book with this theme of hearing and keeping the words that have been given. Chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. What we see here is the book begins by saying God gave to Christ who gave to an angel who gave to John so that John could testify to these seven churches and the rest of us can listen in. And then all through this sequence, we see the authority of this word is not ultimately birthed in the angel who delivers it. And it's not birthed in John or in John's experience or in his vision. It is, it is rooted in the authority of God. That even though it comes through angelic and human agency, they are God's words. What does that have to do with us? Well, in verse 3, the first benediction of the book. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time 
is near. So we keep these words because they are true words. And they are true words because they are God's words. Overcomers obey God's word. Go back to Revelation 22. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, if you love me, you'll always be happy. Now, if you love me, you'll always sing really, really loudly in church. No, he said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Well, for some of you right now, your legalism alarms are going off loud, and you're saying, don't give me more rules. I don't want more rules. I want relationship. Well, yes, following Christ is more than just rules. You're right about that. It's more than just, well, I follow Christ, so I do these things, and and I don't do these other things. You do, in fact, have to have a real and vital relationship where Jesus is a real person and you talk to him and you listen to him and you love him. But you need the rules to safeguard the relationship. You can't have one without the other. Think about all the rules in your marriage or your home that make those relationships fruitful or enjoyable. What if one spouse were to say to another spouse, yeah, babe, you know, I love you, but I don't really want the rules. I just want the relationship. What about the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. Your spouse will say real quick, yeah, you better follow these rules if you want this relationship. It's how I know that you love me. It's how I know that you're committed to me. The Christian life is certainly more than merely obeying commands, but it cannot be less than that. If you want to overcome, you have to obey God's word. Obedience to the Word of God is the basic building block of what it means to be a Christian. And if you have that, then you have a good chance of enduring, of overcoming, of conquering in this life. You can't just wake up and go, I'm just into the relationship. I just want to love God and I want to feel all this stuff. Overcomers wake up on Monday morning and they obey God's Word. That's the point that John is trying to make in these first handful of verses. Overcomers obey God's word. But we also see secondly in verses 10 through 13 that overcomers don't play with sin. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Whoa, what does that mean? We'll figure it out. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We see immediately in verse 10 that John is commanded to not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. What is meant by that? Put your finger once again in Revelation 22, and I want you to turn to your left to Daniel chapter 12, the book of Daniel. It's right before all those minor prophets, but it's right after all the major prophets. So if you see Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, go to your right. If you see Micah, Zechariah, those guys, Hosea, go to your left. Daniel is right before Hosea. Daniel chapter 12. If you want to look at the table of contents, you can do that. It's okay to cheat. No one's going to make fun of you. We're at the very end of the book of Daniel. Daniel has the same kind of apocalyptic language 
that Revelation has. Apocalyptic just means revealing. It uses the same kind of metaphors as Revelation, all the same kind of imagery. But look at Daniel 12, verse 9. It says this. He said, go your way, Daniel. Daniel had just seen a vision of all of the last things. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So Daniel received this message that had to do with the end times. And the angel said, nope, zip it up, seal it. Keep your hand there. Daniel chapter 12, go back to Revelation 22. We're going to go back to Daniel 12. Don't lose your spot. Go back to Revelation 22. We see in Revelation 1, and we see again here in Revelation 22, that John received a message just like Daniel did about the end times. And the angel, unlike what the angel said to Daniel, says this, it is time to unseal it. It is now time to let it rip. It's time to let people see what's going to happen. But then we see in verse 11 in chapter 22, let the evildoers still do evil. The filthy still be filthy. The righteous still do right. The holy still be... When you say, wait a minute, I thought God was loving. That seems like an awfully harsh verse. How am I supposed to understand what's going on here? We'll go back to Daniel 12. Hope you kept your finger there. Daniel chapter 12. Look at verse 10, the very next verse. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Daniel sees as a prophecy that at the end, some people are going to get it and some people won't. Some will repent and believe in Christ. Others are going to continue in their wickedness and rebellion. Daniel received that as a prophecy, but John in Revelation 22, you can go back there, hears it as an exhortation. That in these last days, God will say, have it your way. And this may happen in one of two ways. Way number one, this will happen at the final judgment. That Christ will return in the final stage of history. And our opportunity to change at that point will be passed. We won't be able to say, nobody will be able to say at that point, oh, that is Jesus coming back. Oops, because I was wrong. Oh, well, I'm sure he'll be lenient. I love you, Jesus. Nobody will be able to say that. Jesus' return is the point of no return. When God begins his final act of salvation and judgment on the earth, he will not be offering pardon to the lost. There will be no post-mortem evangelism. Jesus Christ came the first time to seek and to save sinners. That's Christmas. And he's still doing that through the spirit-filled proclamation of his gospel all over the world. But when Jesus comes again, it won't be to evangelize. It will be to reward according to our deeds. He says, I'm coming soon, verse 12, bringing my recompense with me. Did we believe and obey or did we refuse to believe and obey? Even if we said all the right things and looked all the right ways in this life. Lord, Lord, look at all the things that we did in your name. Depart from me. I didn't even know you. Sincerity isn't enough. God is saying, I want to see who you really are. And in that day, everyone's going to be revealed for what they really are. I'm going to strip away all the veneer. Let the angry people get stomping mad. Let the sexually immoral get perverted. Let the righteous do right. 
why we see in verse 12, overcomers don't flirt with sin because you don't know when Christ will return. I am coming soon. There's no specific date given. Even the apostles asked when the kingdom would be restored. This is not for me to know, not for you to know. He says, I'm coming soon. Soon doesn't mean he'll come tomorrow or next week, but he could. It means that there is no more to be done in redemptive history. That's what's meant by soon. There's no more work for Christ to do. The very next thing for him to do is come back. And so be ready. Next week may be too late to repent. Don't flirt around with sin. But here's way number two. Way number one was in the judgment, but way number two may be that in this life we become so callous toward God that He gives us over to our own ways. You've heard the Word of God for the 700th time in your life and you've ignored it and you've ignored it and you've ignored it and God says, I'm done. Quoting Jesus and Isaiah, seeing you will not see, hearing you will not hear, understanding you will not perceive. So we just saw in Daniel chapter 12. It's like a parent when you take your kids to the restaurant and they grab food that you know they're not going to like, especially when they're young. And you take them to the restaurant and your kid grabs that bowl of lemons on the table and they grab the lemon and you say, don't take that lemon. And they continue to take that lemon. I want the lemon. Give me the lemon. You say, no, you're not going to like what's going to happen if you eat that lemon. Just give me that lemon back. I don't want the lemon. I want to eat it. Mine! And there comes a point when every parent says, fine! Suck all the lemons you want. Well, that's similar to what God does. You want the lemon that bad? Fine. I'm done telling you to do it otherwise. Suck on all the lemons you want. This happens all the time. People harden themselves to the word of God. Don't marry that guy. Don't marry that girl. You're going to compromise if you do. Don't hold on to that bitterness. It will eat you alive. We hear God speaking in his word and through other people around us, but we eventually say, yeah, no thanks. We decide to live life on our own, according to our own wisdom. That is the most dangerous thing that could happen to you. The most important thing for your eternal well-being is that you listen to God and turn from sin because you do not know when God will hand you over to a hard heart and say, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Don't wait to get right with God. Don't keep indulging your sinful desires thinking that nobody knows and nothing will really happen because nothing has happened to you at this point. Don't flirt with sin because there will become a time when it will be too late. That's why you and I, oh, we as a church, we've got to know each other. We've got to be in one another's lives. This is why, believer, God has given you the church. Church, this is why God has given each individual believer here. So that we can help one another. So that no Christian is 
on an island. But perhaps you're out there and you say, oh, that'll never happen to me. Well, then you're a fool. Judas said the same thing. Surely not I, Rabbi. Not me. Of all people? Nah, could never happen. That's why we are committed to Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another. This ain't a command just to pastors. This is a command to church members. Exhort one another. How often? Once in a while? Maybe every Christmas and Easter? Every day. As long as it is called today. Why so much urgency? Because I am coming soon. So that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is frightening. We need one another to speak the word of God into one another's lives. And that means that we've got to be close to one another. We've got to know one another. And if you're on an island, you've got to get off that island and you've got to engage. And brothers and sisters, for those of us who are concerned with making disciples, we've got to find those individuals who are out on the fringes all by themselves. And we've got to gently and lovingly bring them in and pray for them and encourage them and listen to them and know who they are. And we need to spend our lunch breaks and our coffee times and our dinner tables getting to know one another so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, so that all of us are able to stand before Christ, arms locked, home safely with Jesus. Overcomers don't play with sin. We don't flirt with it. We don't play with it. We don't mess with it. Thirdly, overcomers come to Jesus. Just look at the exalted view of Jesus here. Look at verse 6. Chapter 21, verse 6. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Same thing is repeated in verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the starting point and the terminus, the first and the last. I am what makes all of history make sense, the beginning and the end. We see in verse 16 that he is the root and the descendant of Jesse. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises through the ages. We see also in verse 16, he's the bright morning star. He is the one in whom a new day and a new creation is dawning. And we're not going to need a sun in the new creation because the lamb will be our light. And look at the response of the faithful to this glorious and exalted Christ. In verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. It's the final benediction in the entire book. Blessed are those who wash their robes. He's not saying to make yourself morally clean. We can't do that. The only other place where we see this term wash that we see here in verse 14, the only other place in the book of Revelation where we see that term wash is in chapter 7, verse 14, where John sees a multitude who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and they have been made clean. And so when John says, blessed are those who wash their robes, it's an invitation to come to Jesus. That's why in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. 
And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. That if you hear the word of Christ, don't stand and turn. you got to come. If you're thirsty, you got to come. If you're morally bankrupt and you've got nothing to offer God but your sin, come and take without price. It's free. You come to Christ. Overcomers, come to Jesus over and over and over and over and over and over again. We never stop coming. One of the big mistakes that we can make is thinking, well, I came to Jesus when I was in sixth grade or when I was in eighth grade and I threw a stick in the fire and nailed my sin to that cross at summer camp and I'm good now. I was saved by grace through faith, but now the rest of my life is working as hard as I can to be a really, really good person so that I might stay saved. You're like those Foolish Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. You who've begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Oh, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell over you that you would believe such a lie? Oh, no, the entire Christian life begins by grace through faith, and it, all of it is by grace through faith. By worshiping with his people, by praying to him, Wash me, forgive me, help me. You have to have big, long, sophisticated prayers, sometimes simple prayers, stuttering prayers, asthmatic prayers are the prayers that you need to be praying. Wash me, help me, save me. I don't have it in me. Don't think that because you became a Christian years ago that you're done coming to Christ for rescue. And don't think that because you came to Christ years ago for rescue, that Christ is done rescuing you. He is not done. You are being saved. And you will be saved. So overcomers keep coming. Because what Satan loves for us to think is I can't go to Jesus. I've messed up too much. I'm too dirty. I'm too sinful. I can't do this. I got to get myself cleaned up a bit first. And then we add to that original sin, whatever sin it is that we committed, with an even greater sin of disbelieving in God's mercy. And so we think, nope, better stay away for a while. I'm going to distance myself from God, distance myself from friends. I'm going to stop showing up to small group. I'm not really going to go to church as often, and when I do, I'm going to show up late. I'm going to leave early because I don't really want anybody asking any hard questions about my life. I just need to figure it out and get my life put together a little bit more because Christ won't have me. He will. He will have you. Stop trying to be clean. Stop trying to clean yourself up first. He will have you. He will not turn away from you. Come to him. And keep coming over and over and over every morning and every evening and every day of every week of every month of every year of your life until he comes back. Keep coming to Jesus. Overcomers, keep coming to Jesus. Fourthly and finally, overcomers don't tamper With God's word. Picking up in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. That if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. 
And if anyone takes away from the words of this book or of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Notice in verse 18 that if you add to God's word, he will add plagues. And in verse 19, if you take away from God's word, he will take away the tree of life. It's a play on words meant to have a definitive effect on the hearer. You add, God will add. You take away, God will take away. This is the same way that God speaks elsewhere in the Bible about his law. He says, my law is holy and righteous and good. I've said exactly what I want to say. I don't want you taking words away. I don't want you adding any words. I want you to speak what I speak, nothing more, nothing less. Well, the same thing is true for all of the scriptures. Overcomers don't mess with the Bible. Think of what this means in reference just to the book of Revelation, the content in the book itself. It means, first of all, that we don't tamper with Jesus' deity or his sovereignty or his power or his mercy. And we don't get to tamper with God's right to judge. And we don't get to tamper with the exclusive claims of the Bible or eternal punishment or eternal reward. Some are marked with the sign of the beast and then others with the sign of the lamb. And that if we go soft on any of this, if we go soft on the testimony of Jesus, then we go soft on the gospel and God does not go soft on those who go soft on the gospel. A couple years ago, I had lunch with a pastor and he was asking me for counsel and advice. He was thinking about taking a pastorate elsewhere out of state And over the course of our conversation, he admitted to doubting whether the doctrine of hell was really true. And that he was drawn toward universalism, that in the end, all people will save. God can't possibly do this, right? He can't possibly judge people the way that that we see we must be misunderstanding. And I sympathized with his struggle because it's a difficult doctrine to understand. But I reminded him of Revelation 22. And I asked him, are you willing to stand up in a pulpit as God's spokesman? And look down at Christ's sheep, whom he bought with his own blood. And tell them, thus saith the Lord. Only applies to parts of the Bible that we like or understand. Brother, you do not need to take that pastorate. You've got more growing to do. And by God's grace, he didn't take it. Our danger... I think in our church, is not that we would outright deny the word of God or go soft necessarily on these hard edges. Our danger, I think, is that we would nullify the word perhaps in other ways. 90% of the time, our problem is not that we don't understand what God's saying in his word. The problem is that we do understand what he's saying in his word. And that means that he's asking us to say some things that are really hard and uncomfortable. And he's asking us to do some things that are very hard and costly and uncomfortable. And so what we're tempted to do is perhaps we intellectualize the word. Oh, this book is too difficult. I'm not a scholar after all. PhDs don't even agree on this. And so the word begins to lack power in your life. And we intellectualize the word to get out from under its claims. Maybe we don't just intellectualize the word. Maybe we're tempted to compartmentalize the word. We apply it to some areas of our life, but not other areas. 
Well, I don't really swear around non-Christians. Oh, but I love some juicy gossip about fellow co-workers. You don't watch that smutty television, but you don't mind getting drunk on a bottle of wine in the privacy of your home when nobody's looking. We compartmentalize the word. Some applies and some doesn't. I like that part. I don't really like that other part. I believe that these truths in the Bible will lead to my joy and happiness, but I think these others won't, and so I'm going to live life my own way. We compartmentalize the word. Or perhaps, thirdly, we might psychologize God's word. You say, well, I have somewhat of a different temperament. I have a different kind of background. You know, I've found that Enneagram knows me way better than anything I've found in the Bible or with other Christians. And so you start thinking yourself, first of all, as a two or as an eight, instead of first as a disciple of Christ. Or you think of yourself as an introvert or an extrovert before thinking of yourself as a follower of Jesus. And you're thinking on this matter, and I'll be honest, this is, I think, more true of those of us who would consider ourselves introverts. It shapes our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And that self-understanding of, well, I'm introverted and I'm extroverted, affects whether or not we're capable or obligated to obey all that Christ has commanded. Yeah, I know that Christ has commanded four times in his word for me to practice hospitality, but I'm an introvert. Yeah, I know God's word says that I need to be quick to listen and slow to speak, but I can't help myself. I'm an extrovert. How easy is it to psychologize God's word and dismiss or to reinterpret parts of the Bible that have been given to us for our good and the good of others, that the Holy Spirit has empowered us in spite of all of our various personalities and peculiarities and particularities. The Spirit is bigger than that. There are all kinds of ways that we take away from the Bible because we come with these preconceived notions about perhaps personhood and morality, cultural preconceived notions. And we think, well, God, the Bible can't really mean that, can it? I mean, I know the Bible condemns homosexuality, but it's not talking about my kind of homosexuality, my committed and monogamous homosexuality. Yeah, I know the book of Leviticus and Romans and 1 Thessalonians directly condemn homosexuality, but the red letters of Jesus never explicitly condemn homosexuality, so the rest of the Bible must either be wrong or it must just have been misunderstood by 2,000 years of the church. In my experience and in my own life, people mess with God's Word, not because of an intellectual problem, but because of a moral problem problem. Because we know that if we affirm the Bible as being written by God and possessing His authority, we have to change. And we don't always want to change. So it's easier to bring God's Word into question or to form it around the parts that we like so that it fits our own moral choices and our own preferences. This is a big deal. And I think it's only appropriate when we get to the end of this book, you go, well, this isn't a very Christmassy message. I want you to feel like something is at stake in your life. 
Because some of you have come in here as if there's no eternal weight to your life. It's either because you don't care much about God or you don't think much about the glory of heaven. You live as if this life and all of its concerns and of all of its anxieties and of all of its decisions are all that it is. Hopefully, if you remember anything from this morning, you'll remember the word Nike. The Greek word for victory, to overcome. That every time you see a commercial or you buy a new pair of shoes, you'll think, overcome. Because the book of Revelation was written to Christians. And God is speaking to Christians as if something eternal is at stake in their lives or as if there is a prize to be lost or won. The book of Revelation ends this way because God doesn't want you to think that you are done with God or the struggle or obedience or passion just because you've seen the reward for those who wash themselves in the blood of the Lamb in chapter 21 and the beginning of 22. The prize at the end, the new Jerusalem, the new creation, to be with Christ, to see him face to face and to reign with him forever and ever. That prize at the end isn't meant to make you slow down or to stop running or to coast. It's meant to make you run harder by God's grace so that you might obtain the prize. Now, most of us in here are theologically reformed enough to say, well, you can't lose your salvation. And for those who are in Christ, that's true. But there will be certain judgment for those who do not follow the Lamb. And this judgment will fall on many professing counterfeit Christians. Notice in Revelation 21 and 22, there are three lists. See it in verse 8, see it again in verse 27. You see it again in our own text, verse 15. They're all somewhat similar, but they're all a little bit different. And there's only one thing that appears in all three lists. Those who are deceitful. Those who are liars. Those who are hypocritical. Counterfeit Christians whose sinful lives don't match their confession. Those are the liars. Compromised Christians that talk a big game for Jesus but will not speak his name in the face of persecution or when worldliness presses in or when their faith is costly. Those are the liars. They talk out of both sides of their mouths and they love to claim Christ when it's socially or politically or financially advantageous and then they gladly deny him if it means making a buck or keeping a girlfriend or a boyfriend or maintaining intellectual credibility with the cultural elite. So when you leave here, and you wake up on Monday morning, how are you going to live your life? This is what the Belgic Confession says. It's what Christians have historically confessed for centuries now. Then the books, that is the consciences, will be opened. And the dead will be judged according to the things they did in the world, whether good or evil. Indeed, all people will give account of the idle words that they've spoken, which the world regards as only playing games. And then the secrets and hypocrisies of all people will be publicly uncovered in the sight of all. 
I pray that nobody here is playing games. The goal of church membership, of belonging to a local congregation, and of submitting yourself to a body of believers is to ensure that none of us are playing games. Not with the Bible, not with sin, not with God. So why does Revelation in this way? Because God in His grace knows exactly what we need to hear after we see the glorious revealing of the new creation. You need to Nike. You have got to overcome. If you want to see this, you want to enjoy this, you've got to overcome in my grace and according to my word. Obey God's word. Don't play with sin. Come to Jesus over and over and over and over again. And don't tamper with God's word. Let's pray.